Hi guys, I'd like to welcome you to yet another edition of the Red Wall Podcast. I'm your host, per usual. My name is Marcelo Inostroza, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number 81, entitled Jamestown. In this edition of the show, I decided to invite a wonderful, wonderful human being by the name of Dan Decker onto the podcast. We talk about Star Trek science fiction in general, and where this, where the conversation went was something that I wasn't expecting, to be honest with you, and it was just fascinating where we actually went and, and what we ended up talking about. So with all that being said, I really hope that you enjoy this interview that I had with Dan Decker. Welcome to the Red Wall, Dan. It's a pleasure to finally have you here. Oh, Marcelo, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, it's absolutely a privilege and pleasure to be here to talk to you today. I, uh, I think we have quite a lot of things that we could talk about. Oh, yes, we do. Um, when I have people from the Star Trek community on, when I have people from the Star Trek community on, the first place that I like to begin with them in generally, in general, is what was, what was your first point of contact with science fiction in general? Yeah, so that story goes way back to before I <clears throat> could form memory. Uh, my, you know, my uncle, uh, who was just a few years older than me uh, by about three years, he was my conduit to, to, to science fiction. Um, and right about that time, you know, everything kind of came together with Star Wars. Uh, and so I was born in 1975. So uh, Star Wars, Superman, the movie, um, and uh, Star Trek, uh, the animated series and Star Trek, um, you know, the original series were in syndicated uh, run. And um, uh, that way, you know, it was just there. And then Doctor Who was also a part of that um, through radio, uh, where we could listen to the audio of the TV broadcast from our local PBS station uh, over AM radio. And so when I would visit uh, my uncle at my grandma's house, that would be um, that would be the way we could listen to Doctor Who because we couldn't get the TV signal in his in his room where he had his little TV. So uh, just that far back is always, you know, Trek especially, but has always just been um, been a part of my life. I can't remember time without it, you know. What was the one thing that sort of, you know, stood out to you when you were first discovering Trek? What was it? The 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 large colors, the philosophies, or just the adventure feel of the show in general. So the the story that stands out to me as the first time I remember being like impacted in a real way. Um, I mean, I I was very young. It was probably you know five, six, or seven years old, um, and I I saw uh, Devil in the Dark. That's that was the episode from the original series with the Horda. Um, where the miners are, you know, disrupting her uh, environment and, and stealing her children's eggs and um, or the eggs of her children. Uh, and, and so um, what I what I gained from that was, you know, through Spock, I learned that, you know, perhaps not all sentient or, or feeling um, uh, entities uh, are human, you know, or look like a humanoid. Um, and so that was a kind of a mind-blowing moment at a very young age 
that has stuck with me ever since. And that the impression of that episode really, because, uh, you know, when I first saw the Horde, uh, it was scary. I was scared of it. And, you know, because it is presented to be kind of the bad, the you know, the bad of the episode. But um, through Spock, of all people who, you know, seemingly lacks his emotion, we're taught to empathize with this creature uh, and it's and uh, the suffering of its children and, and itself. So, you know, pretty powerful. When you were a kid going to school, did you get any like black? Uh, did you get any backlash for being such a nerd and liking Star Trek in 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 the way that you did? Uh, yeah, there was a there was a lot of um, there was a lot of bu- bullying uh, for me for a lot of reasons, um, and uh, that you know definitely being uh, a nerd who wanted to enjoy Star Trek and the other you know Star Wars was a little bit cooler, but. But definitely, um, you know, science fiction and, and those kinds of things, wanting to read, being interested in, you know, going to the encyclopedia, those kind of things kind of put a mark on your back, as it were. Uh, and then on top of that, um, you know, uh, I was in and out of school a lot because when I was young, between the age of two months old and right before I went into the fourth grade at nine, nine years old, I had several surgeries on my right eye and, and resulting in the loss of it when I was nine. So my, my right eye is artificial. And so I went into the fourth grade covered with this m- massive metal plate over this, you know, right side of my face, just taped to the side of my head. And, um, and so, yeah, those two things combined kind of, kind of put a target on me through, you know, pretty much through, uh, most, mostly junior high, but even a little into high school because kids are jerks. Um, but yeah, yeah, it definitely drew attention that, and then, you know, I was in the band and I was in the theater and I was in the beta club and I was on the captain of the quiz bowl team. So it really wasn't doing myself any favors if I was trying to avoid it, but Hey, I really, I don't regret any of it. Obviously, um, those kinds of things are the, the things that I'm proud of. Uh, you know, it is, it is something to be proud of, to be the captain of the quiz bowl team, your senior year in high school. Um, you know, um, how did you, first of all, I never knew that you had a, a fake eye. I'm like, wow, that, that right now is just going away. So whoever, whoever designed that thing, he did a great job. Oh yeah. Um, I've had this one for, since I was 14. So I'm 46 now, 32 years. Yeah. So yeah. The, <laughs> wow. That's crazy. No, as a, as a disabled individual, I can relate to, to your experience just a little bit because uh, when I was a kid, I had about 15, 15 surgeries, uh, throughout the course of my life. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I definitely know, I definitely know what it feels like to be, uh, the outcast among the rest of the cool kids. How long did it take you to, uh, to get used to having, uh, that disadvantage with your vision? So, uh, that's actually a really great question because, um, it, the first surgery was when I was two months old in August of 1975, but not yet even two months old, um, <clears throat> maybe just about six weeks. Uh, but what it was, they, there was a, uh, I had developed a cataract, uh, in utero, uh, in the right eye and not the left eye. Thankfully I still, you know, had my left eye. Uh, but that cataract, uh, they wanted to, you know, extract that. So they removed the whole lens so through, um, you know, through my early years up leading up to them taking my eye when I was nine, there was 
I couldn't see really anything anyway. It was mostly uh, light and dark, um, you know, impression, vague, very vague shapes because there was no, there was no resolution. It was just, you know, light hitting the retina. Um, and so there was no lens to refract that. Now, you know, fast forward to today, it would be an entirely different story. There's so much different uh, ways that they could approach that. But in 1975, there wasn't anything they could do. And I, I guess the fear was at the time that that, that might hinder the, the other the rest of the growth uh, or, or development of my eyes. So I don't know. Uh, but that's what led led to that. So it wasn't um, there wasn't a lot of adjustment other than uh, kind of adjusting to that lack of perception from, um, you know, light and darkness, because uh, blindness is not darkness. It is absence of presence. It's a, it's hard to describe. Um, uh, like, uh, the only way I've ever been in the way to get someone to kind of understand a little is to, you know, say, um, try what, what do you see out of your ear? You know, that is the perception of it is there is nothing there because you can't see out of your ear, you know? I can't imagine that, which is kind of funny to me because growing up as a disabled person, my parents didn't treat me any differently. So when I so when I'm around normal people who haven't met me for the first time and they see me do all these amazing things, the first thing that they often come up and tell me is, how do you do that? And I just say, I've been like this my entire life. I don't know any other way to be. But one of my fears, you know, my entire life is is dumb. It's just stupid. I acknowledge that. But my biggest fear in life is going blind. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I am completely terrified of that. Like this, I can handle. But blindness is as far as I'll go. But I, I think I wouldn't be able to handle that. I, 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 I think I would give myself a little bit of credit, but I think a piece of me would be gone if I couldn't see. Yeah, I, I've, uh, I've thought about it because, you know, a good portion of, I mean, what I do for a living relies heavily on what vision I have. And, um, you know, the thought I've thought a lot about having to learn Braille and things like that. And it, it is an overwhelming uh, thing to consider. It really is. How is that process? How do you, how do you do that? Because I, um, uh, m- most of my listeners know this, but um, it's not, um, I can't read very well. Mm-hmm. And one of uh, growing up as a kid, the way that I got, the, the way that I hustled my way through school was my memory, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. in the fifth, yeah, in the fifth grade, when they when they were all teaching us how to read, um, my memory was so good that uh, my teacher would put a whole book in front of me, and I would go home and I would memorize the book. Oh, so that's amazing! Yeah. After after a couple of weeks, my teacher thought that I could read, but. Later on in later on in my academic career, my grandparents who raised me figured out that I was hustling my way through school, and I'm I'm happy to say that my reading uh, capability is a little bit better, but nowhere near where a person of my age should be. But I am so lucky that I have technology to help me throughout my day to day and what I like to do in my life. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is once I tell you what I do in my life and what my biggest aspiration is, you're gonna think I'm crazy. 
how difficult was it for you to learn Braille? And did you do it well or can you do it now? Oh, no, I haven't learned Braille. I'm just thought, I've thought about what it would be like to learn Braille because that, you know, are my fingers sensitive enough? Am I going to be able, would I be able to understand that? You know, um, I think about that uh, a lot just because, um, well, a lot of it, it has to do with the fact that I've, you know, I've been a lifelong nail biter uh, and I've chewed on my, on my fingers and I, I worried, you know, have I damaged them to the point that um, I wouldn't be able to do that. But um, you know, one of the things that, that half blindness has affected is, you know, I have no depth perception of the world. I, don't, I can't see in three dimensions. Uh, so 3d movies are lost on me. I can't do those puzzles where you have to shift your vision, all that sort of thing. Um, and you know, I, I've recently come to, you know, uh, go on a journey for myself um, about some, you know, some some neurodivergent, uh, uh, you know, patterns that I have and uh, kind of realizing that having to learn to navigate the world uh, with only one eye and, and the, those those challenges, hurdles it presents uh, probably had a lot of, of uh, to do with remapping uh, how my brain worked as a young child, you know, and I, I just don't even realize it. It's interesting that you say you can't see 3D because I can't see uh, in 3D either. Apparently, there's a there's a there's a small little muscle in the back of mm -hmm. your eye that develops when you're a child, and unfortunately for the both of us, for separate reasons, uh, uh, that muscle didn't uh, develop correctly in either of our brains. So I can I can completely um, identify with that. Oh, that's aspect. amazing. How did you go through your through your everyday school life as a kid? Like, how did you do that? Um, for the most part, it, there was not a lot of uh, um, accommodation needed. Uh, you know, I um, <clears throat> I presented you know as intelligent, and uh, I could keep up, and uh, sometimes um, you know excel. Uh, looking back now, I realize, you know, a lot of, a lot of the struggles I had were related to uh, diagnosed and untreated ADHD. Uh, but you know, isn't, aren't we all, uh, and, uh, but you know, accommodations that I did have were being able to sit, you know, always having to sit in the front row, which just amped my anxiety to no end. I really did not enjoy that. Um, uh, it, it was not a lot of fun for me because it singled me out and I never felt like I needed to be um, you know, made, made a special case for. Um, and then the other thing that used to annoy me was having to wear glasses for, so until I was like in fifth grade, maybe 11 or 12 years old, I did not have any visual problems in the one eye that I had, I could see just fine without, without assistance. Um, and so I, I resented having to wear glasses for, for other reasons, because they wanted me to wear the, for safety reasons to, protect the eye I had. So it was like basically wearing, you know, non-prescription safety and they were horrible. My mom always picked out the, the worst frames. Um, and then, uh, uh, yeah, so that was, that was the biggest part of it was just, you know, not wanting to be um, singled out. And so for the most part, other than the bullies among my friends, you know, they never really treated me differently or, or, or anything along those lines. Um, it just limited me from, you know, uh, there were challenges in marching band. If I was on the wrong end of the line, I couldn't, couldn't, you know, stay in line because I needed to be on the right end or somewhere in the middle. So I had someone to the left of me to be able to keep line with. 
Um, and obviously playing sports was a little difficult, so I didn't play a lot of sports. I was pretty good at soccer because that doesn't rely as much on uh, death perception because, you know, you have uh, the ball on the ground <laughs> for most of the time. All the types of conversations that I imagined that we would have, this was something that I wasn't expecting. So this is uh, actually very, very interesting. Oh yeah, um, you're welcome to ask anything you like. I'll, I I love I have no problem talking about uh, what it's been like or what it you know what it is to to have a prosthetic or anything like that. Did your parents once they got used to having a son with basically one eye? Did, were were they supportive in what you wanted to do with your future, or did they sort of? understand that it was going to be hard for you to go through life and did they try to make you understand that you weren't going to be like everybody else yeah so um again excellent questions my parents were both very young when i was born so my mother was 17 when i was born uh, my father was only uh he would have turned 20 uh the, that year um after my birthday uh and so uh you know there there was a lot of disadvantage already uh, my dad was the person who noticed the deformity and and got attention to you know starting the process of getting help, but um, their relationship didn't last you know uh, even a year. So he wasn't as uh, much a part of my early childhood as either one of us would have liked. I, I, I imagine, uh, but my mother um, did what she had to, and whenever she never she never sh shrouded the truth from me. So. It, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut um, and there was very little chance that I would be able to go through the the process to become an astronaut. And she was very honest with me about that because she didn't want me to go through. And, you know, I, I was I lived through the entire uh, space shuttle program. I woke up to watch the first shuttle launch and I was at the last shuttle launch uh, in 2011. And so, um, that aspiration was just a big part of who I wanted to be. Uh, and so, but, but other than being real about what my, um, opportunities were going to be, uh, there were no limits on my capabilities. Um, and so she never kept me from doing anything that I wanted to try other than play football. She didn't want me to play football, which is understandable because, you know, getting side sacked by 300 pounds because you didn't see it coming. is going to cause some trouble probably. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, my mom never really, uh, she didn't put limits on me. She only, she only ever, uh, uh, you know, tried to help me understand what, what my hurdles were going to be and that some things, at that time didn't seem to be attainable. Now, these days, you know, aside from my age, uh, are there, would there be an opportunity to be an astronaut? Maybe because, you know, they're, they're, you don't have to be, come from the military anymore. You don't have to have been, um, you know, a fighter pilot or a test pilot or those sorts of things uh, like it were uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. So, you know, now you can be a scientist and, and learn the rest of the part of being an astronaut later. So, uh, but yeah, she never really, um, now there were times where, uh, she would, I won't say take advantage of my situation, but use it to maybe gain favor. Like, um, you know, I got to take tours of places that most kids probably didn't get to see because, you know, oh, here's my kid. Uh, would you like, would, why don't you show him what it's like in the projection booth at the movie theater, you know, stuff like that.
but um, which I didn't hate. So don't get me wrong. <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, she my mom was always very supportive. She's been, um, you know, she she's not had it easy herself. And so uh, the fact that I am uh, here thriving and, uh, you know, obviously uh, overcome a lot of a lot of disadvantage with my eyesight. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, no big kudos to mom, honestly. Listen, don't give up your dream on going to space. Blue Origin, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. As of the recording, Blue Origin launched today, and Jeff Bezos put himself into space. And his brother. <laughs> and his brother and a couple of kids, it looked like. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, he also, a, uh, a original Mercury 7, I think it was Mercury 6, an original, I think it was Mercury 7 astronaut was uh-huh. on flight too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the oldest astronauts. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, An yeah. older. She, uh, yeah, I think she was like 86 or something like that. I have to check that out. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that, uh, it's not to discount the feat. I just prefer when we had, you know, when we had governmental supported space exploration, um, when NASA was in its heyday, uh, you know, back in the Apollo program, if we were still str- trucking along at that speed, uh, what could it have been like, you know? Shit, I I kind of want to get your uh, your opinion on the state of new Star Trek because I always ask this question of all my guests who have loved Star Trek their entire life. So I want to go there, and then mm-hmm. we're going to get to the the real meat of this interview. And, and I know that you <laughs> took notes, so I'm going to just let you go for a couple of seconds after I ask you this question about Star Trek. Okay. So, What's your overall opinion of the state of Star Trek today? Uh, I have not really ever been more excited to be a Star Trek fan than I am uh, since uh, the announcement that Discovery was going to be uh, the first new show since since Enterprise and the first new Star Trek since, uh, you know, beyond. And um, I've only been continue to be excited since then. Uh, I have uh, I'm overall very positive about new star trek i i love uh it all for different reasons discovery uh in particular i i enjoy quite a lot now i do have you know certain criticisms about the way uh about their uh economy of storytelling sometimes i think they forget that they're near the end of the season and then they whoops that i gotta gotta wrap it all up uh and it feels rushed where there where there could have been some more room in the middle to maybe make different you know choices with that story economy um but same kind of thing with picard that first season um but again i kind of you know i kind of give it the 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 grace the room to breathe that you know discovery has just now kind of gotten to where most trek got to in its first season as far as episode count you know somewhere in the middle of uh season three they kind of got to that spot where you know the 20 odd episodes from from the days of yore uh, so even kind of given it that, you know, season three is when things start to click. Um, it, it's not even the same amount of time, you know, that the older Treks had to get to that point either. So a lot of room to grow still, but really, really engaging. I, I just love so much about what it's doing, um, not only with the story, but with representation uh, and, and how that and how important that is. And the fact that we are having those conversations now. Uh, with regards to Star Trek is is really uh, enjoyable. I loved Lower Decks. I think it's absolutely hilarious. 
I'm looking forward to season two coming up as you know, relative to this recording real soon. Um, going to be fantastic. Uh, Strange New Worlds. I couldn't be more excited for it for all the reasons, um, you know, it, it's going to have an, I mean, we've already seen this cast work. Uh, we've already seen these designs uh, and I love them. Uh, and the idea that we're going to get back to a little bit more of an episodic format um, with Trek, while I imagine they'll find a way to build in a, a, you know, a season arc that is, that is, you know, in the background, maybe the BC stories uh, that our A plots are going to be, you know, strange new worlds of adventure. Uh, and then Prodigy, um, I, I, you know, I can't wait to see what it is because it looks fantastic. And the fact that they're using that as an opportunity to um, embrace alien, uh, you know, physiology, uh, where, whereas, you know, in the physical world, it's kind of hard to do that economically. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about Star Trek right now. The 55 year mission is uh, coming up at uh, Las Vegas this year. And it's um, it's an exciting time to be a long haul Trek fan. Where have you been, Dan? Where have you been all my life? Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I uh, uh, no, no. Throughout the course of this sort of Star Trek fan guest appearances on my show, I've realized that I am not alone in my current love of new Star Trek. But it's safe to say, to make a long story short. When Star Trek Discovery was first uh, introduced, I went through hell or high water and I, ex I experienced a really, really negative side of the Star Trek family for the first time in my life. It really made an impact on my soul and it kind of just, it destroyed me for a little while, but I was so lucky that I ran into this positive pocket of star trek fans that you are in now and i'm so happy that i found you guys so guys we're going to now come to the point of the interview that is the main reason why i wanted dan on the show and uh this one's for you geek in review we're going to talk about for all mankind so dan just in general when that show first came out what were you thinking uh oh so first of all the title fantastic title i mean it's it speaks to my to my nasa nerd heart um and uh the showrunner ronald d moore of course deep roots with star trek deep roots of course with the uh, reimagined battlestar galactica um which of course those two shows are in the four four pillars of of, of sacrosanct uh, sci-fi that's uh star trek battlestar galactica stargate and star wars those are they have achieved a status that I can no longer be objective uh, in any real way about those things. And so Ronald D. Moore developed it um, an interesting partnership between Sony and Apple. Uh, but I was excited because one, we're talking uh, space history here uh, or, or the space race. Um, and two, it's alternative history. Uh, and I love um, uh, alternative histories because uh, they're like they're like these thought experiments where you can just you know tweak a thing two or two here and there and you know what if Ronald Reagan was president in 1976 instead of 1980 you know kind of how the Watchmen did it um, and so and the Man in the High Tower and so these alternate histories really kind of appeal to that whole I love the what if and the else worlds from the comic book days um, I'm anticipating a lot uh, of enjoying. 
the new what if series that's coming from Marvel on Disney plus. Uh, and so, yeah, just the idea of an alternate history telling of the space race where um, spoiler alert, the premise y'all is the Russians won the moon uh, before the United States did. And rather than uh, set aside and give up, we went ahead and it continues the space race at the pace from the fifties and sixties into uh, well, by season two, we're, we're into the eighties. So yeah, uh, that's, that's kind of the broad, broad overview. What would it, what would happen if the, if the Russians beat us to the moon and we kept trying? What are, what are some of your favorite moments or episodes or uh, moments or episodes from season one? Um, one of the things that really, that really, uh, took me by, you know, I actually gasped. I had to maybe pause the show and, um, and take a moment to reflect was when, um, uh, the Gene Krantz character is out near the launch pad and the rocket, uh, the rocket fails and explodes and, and incinerates him. And, you know, he's a real life hero of mine and, and that playing out differently in that alternate history was, was, a was, was hard for me, honestly, to see. Uh, of all the books I've read, you know, in the last twenty years, his his uh, book uh, "Failure Is Not an Option" is one of them, uh, and um, an absolutely excellent book. Uh, but yeah, it it was that was in the moment that stood out. Um, you know, the the way they sped up the inclusion and and diversity of women and and people of color in the astronaut corps. Uh, you know, for PR reasons, but it still tells, you know, an accelerated story. Um, those moments stood out. But, yeah, that was probably the one that caught me caught me most off guard. Because, um, you know, moment for moment, other than a few uh, differences here and there, uh, it kind of tracks along with the, the typical space history. There are different failures, uh, you know, than Apollo 13 um, uh, that on the way to the moon. But yeah, yeah, that that one really kind of punched me in the gut, I guess. Yeah, actually, my favorite episode from season one is Prime Crew. Mm -hmm. When when Molly Cobb realizes that she is no longer a pilot and that she actually she actually has to be a symbol for all women who want to eventually go into space. And I think that that episode is so amazing in particular. And my favorite scene from that episode is where um, Molly has a run-in with Margot, and Margot basically chews her out and basically says, you're not a pilot anymore. You're an astronaut, so you need to start acting like it. Yeah, yeah. And that is that is kind of uh, a through line for Molly's character uh, into, um, you know, she is very brash, and she is not one to preconsider consequences. She... She tends to go and and then have to deal with the aftermath, um, you know, uh, in season two when she went to save Rubo, um, you know, and then she doesn't want to deal with the consequences of that action, even though she knew that's what was going to happen. You know, it's it's she's kind of frustrating in that way. Um, and I guess that I guess our frustration as the audience is exhibited through her husband in the show. You know, we kind of I, I think he's our proxy for uh, our frustration with her. No, but there's no doubt that she went out like a hero. I mean, when I saw her, you know, you know, standing in that in that cave right next to the the base uh, during uh, episode one, everything is going to be all right. I was like, there, there's, there's no fucking way she's going to stay there. But nope. when she, 
but so, but when she physically went out and went to get him and the visual of her basically saddling him on his back and dragging him back to the cave was amazingly written and it was such an emotional and impactful scene it was so so great i think you just lit on something there uh that that kind of encompasses this show in general and the writing the writing is so tight this is what i'm talking about when i say economy of storytelling these are what 10 episode seasons yeah, 10 episodes, uh, yeah, yeah yeah we've got 20 episodes of for all mankind right now and there isn't there, there really isn't a wasted story a wasted moment um you don't feel like uh well i didn't at least feel like anywhere along season one or two where I was like, oh, that episode could have, we could have skipped that story or that part of the story. Um, you know, and so many of these shorter run seasons, there's a couple episodes where you're like, what were we doing here, people? Uh, but none of that I felt with For All Mankind. I couldn't, I, I like I like the weekly release, you know, the old school um, week to week release because it gives you a chance to absorb, anticipate, want to, see the next episode you know um i i there for several weeks i get to wake up on friday and excited that there was a new episode of the show um and uh and yeah just it, it, that economy of storytelling if you want to see an example of what i mean by that um go ahead and watch the uh, go ahead and watch for all mankind it's uh oh. it's it's good at it <laughs> with the production design in particular ronald d moore had a genius idea of bringing the, the, the Akudas to do most of the production design on the show, if I'm not mistaken. So what are some of your thoughts on that? Oh, well, you know, speaking of personal heroes, Mike and Denise Akuda fall into the category uh, because, yeah, it, as you as you if you don't know, uh, dear listeners, if you're a Star Trek fan and not uh, not aware of who Mike Akuda is, um, he's basically uh, him and his wife are responsible for almost everything you see on screen. Uh uh, aside from the original series, uh, modern Star Trek from the motion picture forward uh, has had their influence um, and continues to in even the newest Trek because that's where Elkars comes from, y'all. Um, anyhow, uh, like you said, completely wise decision because what we have and you know what we start to see because NASA continued to advance um, and as as they kind of get into a little bit in season two. Uh, NASA is, you know, somewhat a quasi-capitalist uh, extension of the federal government. They've they've been allowed to license their findings and and um, or patent and license those uh, license those technologies and, and and generate revenue from it. So there's a lot more advanced, quote unquote, advanced technology from the time. Um, and what what's been done brilliantly is blending the design aesthetic from the late seventies, early eighties into what would be like, you know, what would FaceTime be like if there was slightly better technology in 1978, what would that be like? Um, and so we kind of get to see that and, you know, uh, what would the first electric car be like if, uh, if it were in 1982, right? So um, those, the, the, the way that, and there, and it's just in the background and when it's used in, in proper and, in, you know, in hand, like their cell phones and everything like that, it just, it feels like it fits. Um, and, and that, I mean, I don't know uh, any other way to say, you know, they understand the design aesthetic of that time period and they understand how to uh, 
how to update or a retrograde update uh, what we're familiar with because it feels familiar. Uh, and that's where, you know, it kind of blends in because it, it, it is something that you can identify uh, from that period, but also know that it's not, it's a bit, anach- it's a bit anachronistic, right? From a story perspective, what was your favorite storyline to follow in season one and season two? Uh, my favorite storyline in season um, two or season one was uh, the, the, basically the, the women astronauts. Um, and probably Molly in particular, uh, just because she was so headstrong and stood out so much. Um, but, uh, Margo too, and her, her journey to find her identity. Um, and that is, you know, that is a through line through both seasons. And I think something we're going to see, uh, play out, uh, to, to a, a broader degree in season three. Uh, just if, if we're going in the direction they kind of led us by, um, but those two, those two characters in particular, um, I was devastated by, uh, you know, Ed's story and the loss of his son. Uh, that was something easy for me to empathize with. Um, and, and, you know, just the, uh, just empathizing with senseless tragedy in general, you know, the loss of, of any, anyone to just an accident is, you know, it's kind of hard to reconcile. Um, and then in season two, uh, Gordo, man, uh, Gordo's story um, and his uh, his his triumph in the end, um, uh, I was I was crushed. I I yelled at my TV. Uh, I really did. I was like, I, "You sons of bitches, better not!" And they did. And I was like, "You sons of bitches," uh, because you know, emotionally, you want both things. You don't want that to be true, but you're like. They're writers. They're going to do it. They're going for your heart. They're going to rip it out. They're going to watch you die while you see it beat in front of your face. And that's just going to be the end of it. Uh, so, yeah, Gordo and, and Tracy's story was, oh, man, that was great stuff. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, Dan, you and me both. I mean, my favorite two characters on the show, you know, uh, period and stop uh, was Tracy and Gordo. I actually had. Um, Apple TV Plus for a year, but before um, season two aired, my fin- my financial situation wasn't that great. So the only way that I could watch the show was to pirate it. Yeah, that's and fair. <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I had some trouble doing that to the point where I couldn't watch the show week to week. And unfortunately, I had Twitter kind of spoil that for me. Oh, no. but none the, yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, uh, when we finally, when when I finally got to Gordo and Tracy's final act of heroism, I was a fucking wreck. I couldn't. Yeah. Oh yeah. I couldn't. I I couldn't stop thinking about her for like two days. When uh, when those moments get me, I cannot sit down. Like I'm I am physiological and capable of staying in my seat. I get up, I pace, I rend my hands, I, I, you know, get as close to the television as I can. I'm getting very emotional, uh, you know, like heart wrenching emotional. Um, and I was, I was in that moment, just the same when, when Michael said goodbye to Spock, uh, at the end of season two discovery, I was in the same, I was in that same place. And I was just, I was like, this is why I, this is the kind of show, this kind of story um, that I want to watch this kind of story that I want to have be a part of my memory 
Uh, and like you said, I just thought about it for days because, you know, I mean, I mean, just everything about that moment was they're inside the hatch, man. They're inside the hatch, man. You know, they made it, you bastards. And it just, oh. Well, well now I think is we're going to get to the most shocking point of the interview for you because of what I told you that I can't read very well earlier. Uh, one of my aspirations in my life is to be a TV writer. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And as a, as a writer, I've been writing for 12 years. As a writer, I kind of saw little, little road marks, little, little uh, uh, road marks as to where, uh, where uh, Ronald and his writing staff could be taking Tracy and Gordo this season. But me, like an idiot, I was thinking, there's so many awful things that have happened to our main cast this year. There's no way they're going to do that. And I was like, when, when I got to the end, I was like, Oh God, I hate you, Ron, but good on you. Good on yeah. you. Good on they you. They did the thing. They did it. As far as I know, I, I, I heard some, I, I watched some and I read some interviews with Ronald D. Moore. According to him, his staff really, had a had they they really thought about doing that because early on in the season some other astronauts were supposed to do that but he ultimately felt that the story that they told with Tracy and Gordo in between seasons 1 and 2 was complete mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and he and he felt like their storyline couldn't go any further which was which was really fucking frustrating to me because they were my favorite characters but you can kind of feel what they're talking about with that, you know? The other thing that I think that this uh, is specifically season two got me ready for is that I think that in season three, we're going to get a massive transition to mm. new yes. characters. Not, not only, no, not only a new time period in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, 95. Yes. I love the nineties cause I'm a kid of the nineties. So oh, yeah. me, that's like catnip. Oh yeah. Um, Nostalgia bombs. I think think that we're going to get a massive transition from what we're going to, we're going to see a lot of characters who were in the background in this season go towards the front. What do you think is ultimately going to happen with uh, Ed? Do you think that he is going to still be a part of NASA in the same way? Or do you think he's going to start to explore other um, areas of his life within the show. How affected do you think he's going to be? Because he was tremendously affected at the at the death of Gordo at the mm-hmm, end of the mm-hmm. season. Well, so, and you know we're we're jumping about a decade, so yeah. uh, it'll be, be interesting. Like yeah, exactly. And so you know that's that's a that's that's a point I've been thinking since the end of uh, and the jump to uh, ninety five, where what. You know what does that mean for our first round of of characters? Um, they're going to age uh, a bit considerably, and uh, you know, like what will Ed do? Um, he's already been the head of the astronaut office. Uh, you know, I I I really don't know how we're going to see or or deal with or what the outcome with Molly's going to be. Obviously, she suffered a high dose of radiation, and 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 you know, will she? 
be surely they can't kill her off off screen. Uh, that would be rude. Um, and so, where is he going to be in the administration? Is he going to be, you know, head of NASA? Um, I don't know. Is he going to be in the private sector? Uh, they didn't give us any clear indication. Uh, you know, they left they left us with him being basically the hero uh, at the end of the at the end of the season and making the right call. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't have a clue, man. As much as I love Molly Cobb, I almost have it in the back of my head that you're probably going to kill me, but I almost have it in the back of my head that she will pass away off screen. Yeah. And the reason, the reason why I say that, and this is, this is a weak argument. I completely acknowledge that, but at the end of season one, we understand that Gordo and Tracy are in a good place, so to speak. They're semi-stable, right? Mm-hmm, right. And at the start of season two, it's like we missed a complete part of their friendship. That's so true. for yeah, so for me, it was like, you know, maybe Ron and maybe the writers are that kind of that kind of vindictive to, that they might consider sort of killing Molly off screen and sort of starting the season with a, with a, you know, eulogy or, or, or something like that. Flashback moment or something like that. Yeah. 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 I see her going out in a blaze of glory. Oh yeah. No, she's going to do something insane. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, not to not, you know, I see her maybe going out. Well, she couldn't do this because she probably killed someone, but in my head, I would probably have like her like uh, get onto a plane and and take the plane and fly it over the you know fly it over the ocean or something. Yeah, and then yeah, like she did where she went to the edge of space, you know. Yeah, she she almost killed herself. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't. Yeah, but I'm I'm very very interested to see where her character is going to go. But the one thing that I'm very interested about is to see how. The relationship between Ed and his wife progresses because yeah. his wife, his wife, as what she did the first time I watched the show, I was, I was like, you deserve no forgiveness. I was. Yeah, that was very I, frustrating to watch. Yeah, but 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 you know what? I was like, the first time I saw it, I was like, you deserve no forgiveness. But the second time I watched it, I was like, I took the I took the situation more into consideration. And I I was a little bit more soft on how I felt about her. But what are your overall feelings on that story point? What what really stood out to me was that that he is he was you know her son's best friend, uh, and so that was her son's age, and that really you know all the rest of it aside, that's the one thing that stuck out to me the most probably, um, but. Did it serve? Did it serve the story overall? I don't know that that storyline served the greater purpose um, because all it did was, uh, it, it, I guess, it gave Ed some tension, uh, in, you know, kind of, kind of to to give him something to be distracted about when he was trying to make the probably biggest decision of his entire career and entire life uh, with regards to you know arming Pathfinder, uh, but. But yeah, um, I, I just don't know. It, it it felt like a little bit of a distraction um, 
and I, like I said, I don't know if it, I don't know if that whole thing served the story overall. What was your, what was your overall first impression when you realized what, what the writers were doing, and when you realized basically what we what we were getting in the season finale for All Mankind is a blockade of space. Uh, that it was a, it was basically kind of, um, you know, it was, it was parallel or akin to uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis in a lot of ways, only um, with with near radio blackout because you know it was on the far side of the moon and uh, it was, um, you know, it was very tense because, and this this and this this uh, is a story that I recently learned about uh, historically that uh, you know. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the uh, the missiles in Cuba were fully operational. Uh, Castro had clearance to launch them at will for whatever reason he seemed fit. And during that blockade, there was a nuclear submarine, uh, a Soviet submarine, underwater um, there, and they were unable to be in communication because they couldn't risk disclosing their location. Their air conditioner had failed, so it was about 120 degrees in the submarine, and um, they were being depth charged, uh, but but it, somewhat indiscriminately. So the depth charge uh, from the from the surface didn't really know they were there, but they were basically harassing an area, and so these the submarine had a nuclear tipped torpedo, basically aimed at, at Florida. Uh, and, and the crew, you know, the, those in charge on this, on this boat, um, they, they really didn't have a way to know ultimately what was going on. Were they being depth charged because we're at war? Were they being depth charged for other reasons? You know, what was the situation on the surface? They had no way to know. Uh, and the protocol was that three of the ranking officers had to agree to fire the nuke. And one guy said, no, in the end, one guy said, no. Uh, that that it was it was too much to risk uh, being wrong, and um, that's kind of where you know when I heard that story after having seen the season finale, um, it boils down to ultimately when it comes to nuclear annihilation. In the end, it's up to someone who will never know, who was unelected, who likely isn't paid very well and is in a high stress situation. And will that person make the right call? Ed's story is a little bit different, probably paid a little bit better, you know, definitely a smart person, but, but in a very tense situation with literally the world on the line and thinking, you know, distractedly thinking about that his wife cheated on him, you know, I mean, it's pretty rough, man. But as I said, the first time I saw it, I wanted to, but um, in in subsequent rewatches, and I've seen the show three times now. I watched, yeah. it, I binged it today just for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> and, yeah, and um, I I kind of forgive her based on what she was going through uh, throughout the the whole of season two. So I'm 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 a bit I'm I'm a bit more forgiving to her in that aspect. Are you worried with Ron D. Moore not as the day-to-day showrunner on For All Mankind that the quality might go down? 
Um, you know, I don't think so because I trust those uh, who have gotten us to this point. Um, I think a lot about, you know, some. It, I imagine that it is difficult for someone like uh, Ron to let go of these kinds of things and and let someone else kind of steer the ship. Uh, and so, if he's determined that it's okay to do that, I will trust that. Um, like they say, uh, it's it's on him to fail. Uh, you know, I'm going to give uh, all the all the leeway um, because you know it's yet to be seen. Uh, but I, I don't imagine that that even someone you know or, or an entity with uh, as more often than not a critical uh, eye as Apple would would continue to to show if it weren't up to a particular standard too. You know, you uh, went through some. Uh really dire health issues recently. Could you talk a little bit about that and what that was like? Uh, it was, a, a, a man, a terrible, honestly, just a miserable uh, journey to determine and kind of come to an understanding of what, what's happened. Um, I would not wish it on my worst enemy, honestly. I would rather win in a fair fight. Uh, what, what it is, as best we can tell, I've gone through, uh, so far I've had... Um, uh, you know, a CAT scan. Uh, I had a uh, gallbladder ultrasound. Um, I had a particular, uh, you know, one kind of lab workup done. Uh, uh, some other samples taken, and now, uh, as of yesterday, I had an upper GI and um, another blood test done to determine. And this is the point. Uh, it's called AlphaGal, uh, and what it is. It's introduced by a tick bite from the Lone Star Tick. And in that tick's saliva is a particular carbohydrate molecule uh, that we as humans uh, don't know what to do with. And so when you eat mammal products, so any furry animal, any hooved animal, or their dairy products, I can't eat those anymore because uh, when I do, uh, whatever the combination is with that particular carbohydrate in my blood and uh, the proteins in mammal meat um, cause a severe allergic reaction uh, and uh, up to the point, um, you know, severe enough that it could be anaphylaxis. So uh, that's changed a lot of my diet. Uh, I, uh, you know, I didn't eat red meat every day, but we ate it a lot. Um, And so I can still have fowl, fish and poultry, uh, if I choose to eat meat, I'm kind of leaning into more vegetarian eating anyway. Uh, I do enjoy plant-based food. And, um, you know, if an animal doesn't have to die for my benefit, then that's fine by me. Um, I was, in, uh, you know, leaning towards giving up dairy anyway because, you know, it gave me tummy trouble. It turns out that I've probably been sensitive to this a lot longer than I thought um, because here recently I hadn't couldn't remember being tick bit, you know. Uh but finding out about it was was uh, three weeks in a row, every, you know, three Sundays in a row. Uh, I would get better through the week thinking that I'd beat the bug of whatever it was. And, you know, so we'd, we'd, we'd have dinner again that, that Sunday, and here we go all over again. Um, it was uh, uh, violent sickness, chills, uh, hot and cold sweats, fever, uh, uh, seizures, and uh, delirium. Uh, and it lasted for about two days, two, three days the first time, a couple days the second time, and a couple days the third time. And on the third round, I was like, it has to be this meat thing. And I haven't had red meat since 
And it's been difficult to come to an understanding of the trigger versus reaction because it takes four to eight hours for you to react because your body has to try to digest it. And when it can't, here we go. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's a it's an immune response. It's a histamine immune response that that you basically have a severe allergic reaction to trying to process. Uh, so, and I'll tell you this because I think it's funny. Uh, but you know, I live in Arkansas, so that's that's the South, and you know, we hunt game and. I grew up country, uh, and so you know you know you're in Arkansas when the no- the nurse who's consulting you about what these dietary changes mean, and she says, and yet you know, hun, that does mean squirrel and rabbit too, okay? And I just laughed a little bit because I haven't had squirrel and rabbit since I was a kid, but you know it has been in my diet, so I appreciated the heads up. You find substitutes. It's you know uh, I can have custard over ice cream, frozen custard over ice cream doesn't hurt my stomach. Um, ice cream is you know, it's probably safe, but again, um, triggering an anaphylactic response would not be my favorite thing to do. And I, I haven't had anything that bad, but this, this, um, this condition is, is, uh, unpredictable at best. Um, and so, you know, what doesn't cause a severe reaction one time could cause a severe reaction the next time. It's just not, you know, I'm not feeling like gambling with that. Before I let you go, Dan, would you like to promote anything that you have coming out now or in the future? Oh yeah, man! I, I will. Uh, I will take this opportunity to shamelessly promote uh, two projects that I'm actively uh, doing, and hopefully are still cranking along when when listeners get to hear this. And that is, um, of course, as you mentioned earlier, my podcast uh, where I introduce uh, or interview and get to know folks. It's called uh, Bad Choices in Bourbon, um, and you can follow that on Twitter at Bourbon Bad, uh, and it is on Anchor.fm/bcnb. Um, and you can uh, just go go look at the back catalog, find those folks. Everybody's listed there by their Twitter handle, uh, so you can see who the show's about and get to know some of those folks, mostly from the Trek community, but it is not a Trek podcast, uh, though we do talk a lot of Trek. Uh, and then the other thing um, that, I, that I'd like to put out there is uh, my podcast with uh, along with Josh Paddock uh, dedicated to celebrating Superman and that is uh, Josh Dan and Superman uh, at Josh Dan and soups on Twitter and anchor.fm slash Josh Dan and soups so give us a listen and come come hang out uh, while we talk about the man of tomorrow um, we have a lot of fun with that also on that note I'd like to thank you again Dan for taking time out of your evening to talk Star Trek with me and for all mankind. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been absolutely my pleasure, Marcelo. I really do uh, appreciate being here. Thanks so much. That'll do it for this edition of the Red Wall Podcast, episode number 81, entitled Jamestown. Listen, if you like the show that I do here at all, I would appreciate a like, a comment, or subscribe on whatever podcast platform you happen to be listening to the show on right now. But with all that being said, thank you so much for listening if you choose to listen. And as I say often, I'll see you when I see you.